0: Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Words and Images. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the novel A Voice Beyond Reason and the travel story collection With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco. In February 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix on-air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Words and Images podcast feature segments from that radio show, in which I converse with writers, photographers, filmmakers, and more. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening and talk soon. Diane LeBeau is a Bay Area Travel Writers President Emerita and award winning writer and photojournalist who has been to 95 countries. She has published stories with Salon.com, in VIA Magazine, for Copley News Service, in anthologies such as Traveler's Tales, France, a love story, women write about the French experience, Greece, a love story, women write about the Greek experience, foreign affairs, erotic travel tales. B for Savvy Brides, and many national newspapers and magazines. She spent time with Afghan women, the Hopi, Amazon people, Mongolians, Corsicans, and Parisians. A pioneer of college women's studies programs, Diane has a PhD in the history of consciousness and literature women's studies from the University of California, Santa Cruz, Berkeley. She began her teaching career in the Netherlands and was a college professor for many years in Paris, New York City, and California. Diane has done women's rights work in Afghanistan, and she helped write their Declaration of the Essential Rights of Afghan Women, sections of which were included in the new Afghan constitution. And we'll talk to her about that in a moment. Given everything I just mentioned, it's no surprise that Diane received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Douglas College at Rutgers University for, quote, her long career in writing, photojournalism, college teaching, and women's, right, or women's rights work. She is currently working on a book about her search for the best of all possible worlds. Welcome, Diane.
1: Hi, I'm really <laughs> glad to be here. I'm so I'm, honest, honored. That you're so makes honest. Me sound... You're
0: honest, too. No, I'm not that honest. Well, I'm that's honest. true. Actually, yeah. you're not yeah. always honest. No, you're pretty true. honest. Yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're honored as well.
1: But as a writer, you don't always exactly... Well, you, as a writer. tell it as you, you remember it. Yeah,
0: exactly. And you might get a little creative. That's exactly. part, of, that's part right. of the fun. Right. All right. So before, or not before we start, but rather as we start, uh, I want to I wanna just ask you about that last line because that, of course, I took from your biography. So that's essentially uh, on your website. So that's basically your line. Her search for the best of all possible worlds. So what is that referring to?
1: Okay. Well, for many years, people... When I'm, I was, I've been writing my memoir travel stories for many, many years, and people have referred me uh, to me as Candide, you know, from Moliere, a um, Voltaire, or whatever. Um, anyway, this character who f- goes to the worst war zones and says, "Wait, there's good here," mm. and that's been my my um, kind of thrust as I've traveled. Um, growing up in New Jersey in the 50s, when I was supposed to be a wife and mother and uh, the woman behind the man, I didn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. So I took off and started going to outer realms looking for what made people content, what made them able to survive, and I found even in like tiny villages in North Afghanistan You know, what people need, as long as they have family, community, they're not being bombed, they have some laughs, they make music, they dance, Um, that could be the best of all possible worlds for them. Right. So I've sort of collected that image or those images for me as a quilt, really, Mm -hmm. guidelines for my life.
0: Okay. So let's take a step back to something you just mentioned, which was already going to be my next question. So you grew up in the 50s, and you just alluded to the expectations of women. But I want to I wanna read one or actually maybe two quotes here from interviews that I've uh, read w- from you. And Well, actually, one was an interview that I read, and then one was an article you actually wrote. And both of these quotes speak directly to your experience in the 50s. So the first one uh, is from an interview, and it said, quote, Growing up in the pre-feminist 1950s on the East Coast, by about age four, I was aware that my life was not going to be about settling down with a traditional family and female role of that day. So that's the first one. The second quote, which is along the same lines, Growing up in the 50s, I was well indoctrinated to believe that one was a very odd number and that I would never be okay until I met my better half. So tell me a little bit more about those things. How did you know at age four that you were already going to break the mold and that that the established paradigm wasn't, I mean, that's pretty early. So how did I, you know, wait, something's wrong here. I want to live a different sort of life.
1: Well, I mean, it was very, very easy uh, when you're, I was, I was also what they used to call a tomboy. I loved horses and animals. Instead of playing with dolls, I played with um, animals. I brought snakes home as pets and stray cats and um, so on later on, I brought home stray men, but that's another. That's <laughs> we'll get another to that. Story. I think that's the third section <laughs> yeah. of this conversation. Yeah, but okay. when, uh, you know, people would say. Like I remember my aunt be saying, "Oh, you have those peach, that peach, peaches and cream complexion. Men will just run after you." Uh huh. And one of my retorts was, "I don't want to be a baby producing machine." Uh huh. Which I hope I don't insult mothers out there when I say that, but. Um, that's what the role was pushed on me. That's what I would be doing.
0: Right, right. And your your reaction wasn't against motherhood that you have an issue with motherhood, right, but the right. point is you didn't necessarily want that to be right, specifically right. what your life was going to be about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and then what about, I, I really liked that second quote that I just read. I was well indoctrinated to believe, because I think this still applies today, but I was well indoctrinated to believe that one was a very odd number and that I would never be okay until I met my better half. So tell me about that.
1: Right. Well, the whole expression of better half, you know, which which half is <laughs> yeah. better is another question. Yeah. Um. Well, I... I really wanted to see the world and I did try traveling with people and they were mostly disasters and I I would leave them like in the middle of Guatemala but
0: can I can I hold you back and still can I can we keep this when you're you're growing up okay cuz I'm really curious about the early on when these seeds were being planted and then I absolutely want to talk about your travels okay but I'm really curious just about your foundation right right cuz again you're thinking outside the box you're thinking in these terms you're a tomboy you're bringing home Mm -hmm. stakes you're recognizing wait that's what's expected of me and I don't want to do that so early on before you start traveling um, again, I'm really curious about your foundation and when you started thinking differently and and, and why. And, and one of the questions, I guess, related to that is with regards to why and how you started thinking differently was, um, you know, you just mentioned your aunt. I'm curious, were there people in your lives, strong women figures who helped you to think differently and helped you to see that you didn't have to follow established patterns, that you could kind of live a life that was really true to who you were and what you wanted. Were there people in your lives that were helping you with that? Or did you just really just figure this all out on your own?
1: Well, what a good question, as interviewees So, I say. <laughs> Thank um, you. I think both. I, I didn't specifically have like mentors early on, but um, I could tell, like when I, w- I was really smart kid in school and um and especially even into graduate school i would raise my hand and they either wouldn't call on me or i'd say something and then when a man said the same thing they'd say oh that's really clever right Um, so i mean that was part of it and when i mean it was very easy to, to answer that in the in the 50s like the boys had their own gym and athletic events and we didn't have the girls didn't have anything I didn't um, know that. My mom was pretty much an independent type of woman, and um, I grew up in a kind of working-class town right near Manhattan, but over the Hudson in New Jersey. Um, And... It was, you know, it was kind of a rough and tumble town and the boys, you know, teased us and stuff. So my mom taught me how to kick boys in the shin Mm. if they were bothering me. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, once I overkicked a boy called Stanley (laughs) and he had to go to the hospital. (laughs) He had to go to the hospital. His mother called my mother to complain. So
0: you were empowered. Yeah, I was empowered. You were empowered. I was
1: empowered, yes. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Very cool.
1: Oh, and then also at Douglas College, which really turned me around It's a one of the few women's colleges left and quite a feminist um, support network. It's part of the large university, State University of New Jersey, Rutgers University. And a lot of my teachers there were what used to be called spinsters, very intellectual women in their Oxfords and baggy skirts who traveled the world and seemed to be having a pretty good life.
0: Right, and so those were good role models sort of and helped you to see that you could do that for yourself as well. So let's talk a little bit more about education and how that empowered you because as we know education is, is is the key to that. It's the key to empowerment in all all different ways and for all different people. Um, part of what you just said is that you saw some women in education who helped you to see that oh, you could lead a different sort of life, you could lead a life that was right. true to yourself, uh, that wasn't necessarily the, the standard path forward. But uh, tell me more about how education helped you to do that and then specifically when you realized you wanted to be an educator?
1: Hmm. Actually, I I didn't want to, because girls became teachers. So I didn't want to do that. I was going to be a veterinarian, because I trained horses early on. I worked at the stable with um, stable hands, mostly black stable hands, rather than little girlfriends. Uh Those were my buddies. Um, And I... um, why well, you when people said, you know, I majored, I majored in English. I, I was actually going to be a veterinarian. I right. went to Penn State in the late fifties, no, mid fifties, and no, when, when did I graduate? Mid fifties, and um, I was really bright in science and math. But I do the same work as the, the boys. I was the only girl in a class of five hundred. Really, at Penn State. Really, in nineteen. What's, 57, I guess it was. And
0: this was, I'm and, sorry, What you weren't studying veterinary medicine yet. No, you I was pre, pre-veterinary, pre-veterinary medicine veterinary, before okay. I became an English major. Yep. Um,
1: and I would do the same work as the guys and I'd get it back sloppy work redo. And then my counselor, who was a male veterinarian, called me in and I was working at stables. I was physically very strong. And he said, you know, we really don't want you here. You're just going to be married and have babies. You're waiting, wasting the seat of a, a male student. He, they actually they said, said that. that to you. Yeah. Wow. So, but I always love literature and writing. And well, wait, wait, I'm... hold
0: on, hold on. I need, I, need to know, <laughs> I need to know a little bit more about that. I mean, because those are the things you hear and, you know, naively, not having lived something like that, obviously. Um, I mean, just hearing that someone would say something, and I know it was a different time, but still, I'd like to just, how did you feel... I mean, you already know you are living in that time. So you already know that you're up against, that you're trying to go into a field that's not, um, there aren't traditionally a lot of women in it. So you already know that you've got some challenges. But when someone says that, even when you know all that, even even when you know what you're up against, when someone overtly tells you you're just going to go have babies and you're wasting a seat, I mean, how do you feel?
1: Well... I'd like to say I was pissed off and I was uh, assertive. But uh, when you're that age, I was 16. Mm. Um, I just was really annoyed. Um, and there was no one really to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, um, I love my literature classes and my writing. And um, I kept working at stables and training horses. And um, I kind of, there was no, you know, if you're 16, you don't tell... A 50 year old male veterinarian advisor in power that you don't agree with him. So
0: you realized that the door really was being shut. Yeah. That you didn't have, yeah. You, yeah. that really was no longer an option. And for it you.
1: was, a, I mean, more even in high school when I took those aptitude tests, mine came in um, that I should be an attorney. Mm-hmm. And the female counselors called me in and laughed and said, Women can't be attorneys. You <sighs> could be a legal assistant. Uh, that's um, so horrible. So, I, so you know, horrible. I got, I guess, you know, I became sort of annoyed and didn't have a sweet disposition all the time. Maybe because of these things.
0: Maybe. And that I would say that would be understandable if you didn't have the sweetest yeah. disposition after those sorts of things. But I do, you can't right? do this. But well, you do now. Yeah, thank you. You do now. Thank because you've you've gotten through your bitterness, right. you've you've made an incredibly impressive, inspiring life for yourself, as we're gonna talk more about. So let's go. So you're not you're no longer gonna do veterinary medicine. And so now, like you said, you've had this love of literature. And so you realize that's what you're going to pursue instead.
1: Right. And, and, so, and I, I transferred from Penn State to Douglas College, the women's um, college at Rutgers. And um, that really gave me a lot of support. And I really started um, writing more and reading everything. Um, and um, I forgot what I was going to say. But so, yeah, but so you, so you made yeah, the transition. Yeah. Oh, I. Yeah, and um, oh, I know people would say, "What are you going to do with a major in English?" Yes, and I would say either I'm going to read books, or I'm going to be a bohemian writer and move to Paris.
0: Which you did. Uh, the last two. What was the first yeah. thing you said? So you were a bohemian who moved to Paris. You did write books. What was the right. first thing you said? I forget. Oh, you said gonna you were going to be on books. the streets or something. Or yeah, R- read. <laughs> you're going to read books. Well, you've done all of that. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. You moved to Paris. You did right. move to Paris. Or write you did books. write right. books. You wrote yeah. books. Well, no, you're writing a book, because right. you've written lots of articles. Um, okay, but before we get away from education, so you end up, uh, you get your degree in English literature or whatever, I don't, what was it Masters I
1: got at Berkeley and then the History of Consciousness. Fifteen years later,
0: Fifteen years. Later. I went
1: back to redo my education at UC Santa Cruz in a program called the History of Consciousness. I did the History of Feminist Consciousness. Yeah after I was teaching for 15 years. Yes. And my students kind of got me into it because I I was teaching images of women in literature and most of the books, I realized, were by men Mm -hmm. and they um, contained protagonists who killed themselves or were um, locked up. Or went crazy. Lots of tragic figures. Right. Tragic female figures. So my students said, oh, for heaven's sakes, can't you find us a positive role model? Okay,
0: so let's, let's talk about this. Because as I said in your intro, you were a pioneer of women's studies programs. Right. So is that how you got into that? Was your students coming to you and recognizing, we're tired of reading about these depressed, suicidal, weak female characters. We need to do something about this. Or was there already a women's studies program movement going on and you and you joined up with that? How did... How did that come yeah. into, no, there into was, play? No, there
1: was nothing. And I, I, I team-taught a, a class with two male colleagues on images of women in literature and film from the Middle Ages to the present. And the men did the present, and they gave, gave me the Middle Ages through the Greeks, the Romans, and so on and so forth. Um, but because I, they didn't
0: have any knowledge about that? Right, or, right, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and they
1: weren't interested. And then I started looking at our curriculum, and I was including mostly male writers because I didn't know any. Aside because from of Emily your own Dickinson. education. Right, right, right. So I decided to redo my education, and women's studies did not exist then. So I got together with um, a few women um, nationally, actually, and we decided to f- start an organization which is burgeoning still and very, very successful, the National Women's Studies Association. Um, And then I started curriculum at my college and I got a grant from the Ford Foundation who thought this was a great idea to help, because teachers don't like to have to create new classes. So I brought in money to actually pay them to take their regular classes and include more women's history, anthropology, literature. What do you um, mean
0: pay them? You gave them bonuses I, if they yeah, included they, women? They got How a, did that they work? They got
1: a lump of money, and I had like three-day seminars with experts from all over the country to encourage them to change their curriculum a little bit. Interesting. And um, the Ford Foundation used my um, grant proposal all over the country for community colleges to... Um, include more women's materials. Fantastic. So
0: what sort of, you know, um, because this wasn't part of the curriculum, you're trying to make change. You're trying to create, you know, somewhat radical change. Uh, people generally and particularly establishments don't like change. So what sort of resistance did you come across?
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) is that a whole nother show? (laughs) Is that a week of shows? That's probably a week of shows. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: But highlights of some of the resistance Um, you got.
1: Well, for, one thing, um, most of the faculty disliked me. <laughs> <laughs> and why was that? <laughs> and um, and I was traveling even a lot then. You know, I'd, I'd come home from my adventures, and one of my male colleagues in the English department would say, "I bet you've been everywhere and had a good time." Right. <laughs> um, but I wanted to. They, know did, about they didn't want to change the curriculum program. because yeah. it, it's it's too much work. Um, and also, with my students and some community women, we took over a building um, to have it be a women's center, uh-huh. and I wrote a grant um, to help um, low-income women come on campus and have child care. Oh, wow. Um, and then I, I had um, government money to hire people. Like Delane Easton, who's running for governor now. She she worked in my um, early women's studies program. Where is she running
0: for governor? Here? So Here? I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. In San Francisco. I haven't, I I, I haven't paid any attention yeah. yet to our yeah. governor's yeah. race. When so do we she vote? was is one that? of my first hirees. Hi- are we voting for governor this year? Is that already coming up? I think,
1: I don't know, next year. Maybe. Okay, all right. right, then I don't feel yeah. so bad. Yeah, Okay. Right.
0: So anyway, but she was one of your, she yeah. just helped yeah. you out in the, with the program. And she
1: taught women in politics um, at my college, Kenyatta College in Redwood City. Mm hmm. So, right. yeah, a lot of curriculum change. Um, and then I had women who wanted to come up to college. And back in those days, women didn't even have, some of them driver's licenses or social security numbers. And um, husbands would come up and um, yell at me because I was giving their wives new ideas. And really? One even ta- uh, locked his wife in the house when he went out in the morning so oh she couldn't God. get up to campus.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, that's that's just so telling, right? Right, of and how, that wasn't that long ago. Right, and it I'm, wasn't that long ago. And I mean, what better example of the sort of resistance that you met right. and how much society has changed right. and right. how much you helped to right. change society, you and the and the rest of those programs that yes. happen nationally. Yes,
1: and a lot of sisters and brothers. Right. Oh, and then I became an American Federation of Teachers Union president. So they thought I was a fighter um, so yeah, we were. had a very sounds con- like
0: you might have been. Yes, we had sound- a very
1: conservative. Were you kicking and- shins at this point take- still, no. or
0: had you gotten through? That I got phase? higher, higher. Okay. Oh, you got higher. <laughs> okay. All right. Oops. Um. All right. So I want to change gears completely because that's fascinating, and and we honestly could talk about that. I'm sure for an entire episode, if not a couple episodes. Um. And I and that's why I wanted to touch on it because I think it's so important, and I think it is such a key to your bigger picture and the in the story of your life. Um, So thank you for sharing that. But the other thing we really wanted to focus on today is traveling. And so I want to change gears a little abruptly, if I may, and uh, talk about traveling. And I want to know uh, why and where, you know, where initially did your curiosity start? Sort of along the lines of what we were talking about before, you know, when did you realize you could strike out and didn't have to fit the mold? When did you realize, oh, I don't have to stay around at home either. I can I can take off and I can see the world. When did you have that realization?
1: Right. Well, I did it in, in kind of um. I have to say, chicken shit way because I my I had an aunt B who was an international, um, she had her international shoe exporting company. Okay. And she was really unusual for the 40s and 50s. She uh, exported shoes all over the world. Her husband, Uncle Charlie, worked for her. Um, they traveled on Holland American ships. And when I graduated college, I really wanted to go to Europe. And this was, should I tell my age? I suppose if I don't Well, we've well, kind of thrown a lot of dates around, yeah, so I think we're already there. Yeah, yeah. 60, 1961. And people were not yet backpacking alone, certainly not women. I had a boyfriend at Rutgers who suggested we do exactly that. Mm-hmm. And um, my parents never told me not to do anything, but they weren't thrilled about that idea. And I didn't really know him that well, and I had never, like, backpacked around Mm -hmm. Europe. So um, anyway, Aunt B came up with a plan where she hooked me up with a Dutch student organization that was escorting three or four or five um, American college girls, graduates, around Europe for six weeks, and it was really inexpensive. And so I did that. And um, I'm very competitive, so all the girls, I had a really cute guide who was a Dutch medical student, and all the girls were competing for him, so of course I had to win. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the end of the trip, he and I imagined we were in love, and um, I said, okay, you know, I, I was linked up at Berkeley to do my masters, and I finished it in record time, about a year and a half, and uh, move, got married and moved to Holland, and a, a married a Dutch medical student and lived in Holland for four years.
0: but I think uh, you just gave away a really big key to how that or clue rather to how that ended because you said we imagined we were in love. so I'm <laughs> guessing that apparently didn't work out so well in the end.
1: No, it was he, he was a wonderful person, and he's a really, really successful doctor, and I would have been a, a rich doctor's wife. <laughs> but um, we moved back to the states. We were married for about nine years. He was a good person. But um, he was getting more and more boring. I mean, you have to work really (laughs) hard if you're training to be a doctor. I hope he's not listening today. I hope not, too. But he's... Because
0: are you still in touch with him?
1: Not for a long time. Not so much. Yeah, not so much. So hopefully Um, he's not There's a whole other story about how I reconnected, but that's another...
0: Okay, we got... uh, I think we're up at five episodes that we'll be doing together. Sounds like so far. Um, Yep.
1: So anyway, after about nine years, I really missed um, adventure. and. Um,
0: so you came back and, and you had this sort of sedentary life and you really didn't travel for those nine years that, after you came back?
1: That's, Is that, let me see. Yeah, I was at really into horse training and, um, and teaching. I, I was a new teach, college teacher in California. Um, and then at the stable, um, there was this really sexy assistant horse trainer (laughs) so he and I kind of um eyed each other and I didn't want to be dishonest so I announced um to my ex-husband that I really wanted a divorce yeah um and he was really upset by that but so I did and then um that started me on a long train of um adventures and um
0: because after the divorce did you start traveling again is that
1: well yeah I well I stayed with um I don't know if I the should sa- say his name. The so horse was trainer. Rich, he, was a, he was like a cross between James Dean and Robert Redford.
0: <laughs> oh, well, one can understand
1: then why, yeah, yeah. why you. And we're still friends. Actually. Are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but, I mean, he was quite wild. He was what they call a really bad boy, an authentic bad boy. <laughs> authentic, you know? certifiable so, bad boy. So, um, like he liked to make love a lot, but even when he wasn't with me. Type oh, of thing. even when he wasn't <laughs> with you. Okay, well. So... Um, then I split from him and, um, took off to Europe for the first time in about 15 years Okay, and, and um, kept going after that. Okay, I mean, I still had my tenured teaching job, so, it, but I had academic holidays. Right.
0: And, and you had a lot of time off. Yeah. And so, so really, well, while, while you were married, you sort of settled down, focused on the horses, focused on teaching. And then when your life sort of had this big change, you felt freed up again to start traveling. Right. Okay. Right. So let's talk about your approach to travel because uh, you and I have a similar approach, and I liked sort of how you said this. In uh, this was in yeah, this was in one of your essays, "Why I Don't Stay Home," which I'm probably going to quote repeatedly. When I travel, I like to have some I, some idea of itinerary and a program, but I open each day like a Christmas morning gift, even though I know it's going to be a book or a bicycle or something to wear. I don't know exactly which book or what kind of bike or how the sweater will feel and look on me. I may meet someone who says, hey, come home to my Pueblo and have lunch with my 109-year-old grandma and me, and I'll cancel my plane or train reservation and go. Maybe a handsome Pakistani actor and I bump into each other underwater in a hotel swimming pool in Tel Aviv, of course, maybe, and end up making love intermittently for days with breaks for his shoots and my writing and sightseeing. So I leave for Jericho a few days later, no walls come tumbling down. I can do whatever I want because I'm traveling alone. And that again is from why I don't stay home. Um, But then, so that's kind of the positive side of travel. So uh, I'm trying to decide whether I should read the next quote, which is kind of the negative. Yeah, let's, I'm just going to read this next quote and then we'll talk about both kind of the positive and the negative, the pros and cons of traveling by yourself. The one of the, well, okay. Quote, this is again from the same essay of yours. Everyone said traveling on your own as a woman was too difficult scary, lonely, even dangerous. You would have no one to share your happy times with. So share some more with us about your thoughts on traveling alone and why it was so important to you. And again, maybe kind of some of the pros and cons, but really why was it so important? Because again, I think that that's key to the whole thread of your life about the empowered woman and doing things your way and breaking with the mold. And People are telling you, again, you've got to have a man with you, you, you just probably for protection, but also you're going to get lonely, and women just don't do that. But you wanted to travel alone. That was important to you. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. um, Well, when I travel, I like to just almost like uh, an invisible leaf or something, you know, just sort of sink into the culture. And if you're traveling with other, particularly Americans, you know, everybody notices you. So I, you know, I dress fitting into the culture I'm I'm not you know loud or whatever and I get to know local people and if you're with another person I think that's harder to do yep um so I felt, you know, my life's been kind of like a quilt instead of having the same blanket all the time. I have different pieces with mm-hmm. friends and lovers in different countries. And I learn more about the culture and the search for the best of all possible worlds. Like, how are, how, what's their life like? Yep. Like my friends in Afghanistan or in Libya, um, Syria, you know, which was, I was there about six years ago before all hell broke loose. Right. And um, how these people live and how we all connect as human beings all over the world.
0: Well, one thing that people say to me, because I travel 99% of the time I travel alone. And so that's mm-hmm. what I was saying. We have very similar philosophies. And one of the things I say, when people say to me, don't you get lonely? Cause I hear that all the time. Don't you get lonely? And I say, and this is, To your point, I say, well, it's actually sort of the opposite, because if if I'm going to travel with someone in particular, then we are going to share that experience. And it's almost as if we've got a little bit of a bubble around us. And so people aren't going to be it's not going to be as easy to talk with us because we're already talking to each other. That's not to say you won't meet people if you're traveling with someone else. But if you're traveling alone, you're sort of this open door. And I end up meeting, I I find that I'm almost never alone when I'm traveling by myself, right. but I, I can be, I can choose to be right. because I'm not traveling with someone. But if I don't want to be, people, particularly if you're traveling places that are a little more off the beaten path, then people want to talk to you. Why are you there? Like you said, if you're in Afghanistan or if you're in Syria or places like that. Right. So. For me, the irony is when I'm traveling by myself, it's almost as if I'm less likely to be alone because you're opening the door to to those sorts of interactions. And again, when you're traveling with someone else, that can still happen, but to a lesser degree, because people are really curious about you when you're you're by yourself and and you end up meeting these people you probably wouldn't meet otherwise. Right. Um,
1: Like the Baron and Brittany.
0: Like the Baron and Brittany. Um, Do you want to tell us a short overview of that story? Because that's a good one.
1: Yeah, I get do that. Because you brought it up. So yeah, yeah, let's hear that story. But maybe before, I just want to touch on fear. People, uh, women particularly, worried about danger and fear. And people ask me, um, aren't you afraid? And I say, you know, I've only been physically attacked twice in my life with guns. And it was right here in San Francisco and Berkeley.
0: I say the exact same thing. The only time I've ever been uh, held up at gunpoint was 10 minutes from here, from the studio. Right. Right. In San Francisco, right. I've seen guns. I've been surrounded by gunfire. I've had other interactions, but I've never been held up anywhere right. except for in my right. home right. city. Yeah,
1: yeah. Or you know, well, sexually assaulted is a whole other thing. That, but that was more by fraternity boys when I was in college. That you was know. here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the um, the danger thing. I, like, I was chloroformed on an Italian train and they got away with everything. I, a good story came out of that because yes. my Italian friends took care of me afterwards.
0: Okay, sorry. We have to talk about that then because less the story because I think that right. that's the highlight of the story. You were chloroformed on an Italian right, train and right. they took everything. But Bob Holmes, the photographer who I know you know, uh, he was on the show a couple weeks ago. And one of the things we were talking about is this idea that in order to have an adventure things have to go wrong right which is really ironic right because you don't want to be chloroformed on a train. No. I don't want some of the experiences that I've had to have happen. But then afterwards, ironically, it's because you had those difficult or even traumatic experiences that you end up with the good stories. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Because right? you well, don't want those things to happen, but then you're g- almost glad they did because the stories that right. come from them. Well,
1: Tim Cahill has addressed that also. He said, you, you need something to go terribly wrong. And if not, you have a spiritual experience.
0: If something doesn't go wrong, right, th- then right. you need a spiritual experience, yeah. like instead, so that yeah, you had something powerful to come back with. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But that's, you know, it's really true. Like I'm trying to um, write a story about my um, horse trek in Mongolia, um, and nothing really went wrong. Everything mm-hmm. was great. So I'm having it makes a little it more of a challenge tra- You know, I did meet what I think was a descendant of the Amazon women. Up in, in Oof, Mongolia, in, Mon- Not in Mongolia, a, yeah, in the Uffs Mountains,
0: a descendant of the Amazon women, yeah. In Mongolia? They found
1: they found um fossils there where that were all um women and they could tell they were horse women, women from their femurs or something being mm-hmm. curved mm-hmm. and their right shoulders being really strong or whatever because they shot arrows. So, yeah, they never knew where the Amazons were. So, and I That's met a young woman who seem to fit that bill way in a in a blizzard high in the oofs mountains in Mongolia. <laughs> so I had All right, that.
0: there is a story there. There may not have been there it's might not, not have been yet. any 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 danger right, or right, right. but there's yeah. a story there. Yeah. All right, but we have ten minutes and I have too much to ask you. And one okay. thing I want to make sure that we don't miss and okay. you you kind of started to go there a second ago. Let's talk about your experiences in Afghanistan. Okay. And some of your travels that were more off the beaten track. But let's talk specifically about Afghanistan okay. because we know that that is a tricky place. We know that that's a really important place. And you found that you could do some real good there. So tell us about how you got involved with helping the Afghani women and what that was like.
1: Great. Well, I was, I was teaching. I lived in France for a number of years and I directed study abroad programs in Paris. And while I was there, this was, let's see, 99, 1999. The Taliban were in great, in power in Afghanistan, and it was like the worst nightmare for women. You know that you know women couldn't go out; they had to be covered. They couldn't even go to baths uh, to take a bath or anything like that. Um, and so I had friends in Paris who knew Afghan women who were living there in exile during, you know, the educated women with enough living in Paris. Got yeah. out and yeah. were in France with a lot of support, really from France. So they said, "We're going to have a conference in." Um, Afghanistan to help the Afghan women write a declaration of the essential rights of Afghan women that will be presented to the UN, Kofi Annan, and and also the upcoming Loya Jirgo, which when they wrote their first constitution. And as the longer story, but as it evolved, it was really hard to fly into Afghanistan then. And in fact, so we went to Dushanbe in Tajikistan and helicopters were sent for us, and the one I was to get on was either shot down or f- collapsed. I mean, oh it God. didn't ever get to come pick me so up. So,
0: just so I understand, the helicopter was to take you from Dushanbe into Afghanistan, yeah, yeah from Tajikistan so to we, Afghanistan. We decide, mm-hmm.
1: Plans changed, and yeah. we we had the conference in Dushanbe and Tajikistan. About five hundred Afghan, a lot of Afghans were living there in exile because the language is Tajik language, is very similar to the um, Tajik uh, to the Afghan. Similar to the Afghan language, um, and so while I was there, I met all these Afghan women who, you know, people see you as an American in those cultures and think you can do anything. So they told me their stories, which is in a story that will be in my book. It's on my website, www.dianelabo.com, with my a lot of my other writing. Um, and so I met, you know, people there. We did write this declaration. It was parts of it put into the constitution, but. Getting it um, enforced, you know, getting the laws a difficult thing. So no. then I went back. Um, we had some good years in Afghanistan. I went back um, with different Afghan women and traveled around, went up to the north. Um, I'm now helping uh, hopefully to sponsor a woman that a young woman I met in two thousand. She's now twenty four years old, and she's a senior at Ka- the American University of Kabul. And um, she really needs to get out. You know, things are really bad there. So she she got herself a scholarship, a fellowship to um, China, um, where the sh- she hopes maybe she can get a visa to the UK. But, you know, there are a lot of desperate people. They're such sweet people. I mean, I walked around. I traveled around Afghanistan. I never felt threatened. People were so kind to me, and uh, especially... You know, being an educated woman, ironically, because their culture... Um, originally, their culture was quite egalitarian back in the 60s. In the 60s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have Afghan friends who grew up then when Kabul was... I wouldn't say Paris, but it was pretty nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so you've stayed in touch with this woman and some some of the other people yeah, that you yeah, met. Yeah, yeah, we're on an email. And, and, um, you can, and yeah, they, after, they can communicate in things. I mean, things yeah, are oh, yeah. fairly open in that sense. Open oh, enough yeah, yeah. in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about, again, um, kind of transitioning from that experience to travel writing. Because obviously, a lot of these experiences that you've had, you have written about. And you've written about in, in all the magazines and the different anthologies that I mentioned at the beginning. And, um, but how did you get into travel writing? Because it's one thing to travel, but then you decided at some point, I want to write about my experiences.
1: Because I was doing academic writing about women's studies and being an American, uh, or women's studies um, revolutionary, I guess. Um, I was talking to Don George, who... was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Yep, my first and, um, show, yep. And he, at the time he was running a wonderful, um, editing a wonderful section on salon, salon.com that was called um, Wanderlust. And I said, boy, you know, I have a story where a lot of my love affairs, as, traveling as a single woman, have started and ended in phone booths. This was before cell phones. <laughs> uh-huh. And he says, oh, that sounds great, send it to me. Yeah. So he published my first uh, travel story called love on the line um, on salon yeah and it was about that how love affairs started and ended in phone with
0: and so that obviously worked out well and you just kept doing yeah, it yeah kept doing it yep
1: and then I got to be president of the Bay Area travel writers which is a great organization based here in San Francisco mm-hmm. we have about 200 professional writers and photographers
0: yep so now we fast forward to 2018. And you've done, how many years did you, when? how long ago was it that you wrote that first travel article for Don and for Salon? We're talking 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? I don't know. I guess it probably wouldn't be 20. Salon is fairly. Maybe 20 years. Maybe 20? Okay. So now you've got this massive collection of stories. And how long have you been saying, I got to turn these into a book?
1: My friend's. Won't talk to me anymore. <laughs> They're so tired of hearing about it. Right, right. So, yeah, it's been a long time. Because some of them were written a long time ago and were published. Um, and it's, the, the arc has changed. Like a lot of, maybe the first half, I was wilder I guess Um, I don't know why I'm supposed to but lots and lots of lovers so I'm worried the book might be too
0: too risque too risque okay but let's talk about that because I had that as a section and I was just I just kind of skipped over that in the interest of time but since you brought it up Part of, I mean, part of empowerment and part of something, a big thing that we have an issue with in our society in particular is sexuality and women's sexuality. And part of your writing, a big part of your writing and your own personal empowerment and sort of the message that you've brought to the world is about embracing your sexuality. So and writing about it right. again, and that is something, of course, that was not done way often back when. Often in a funny way, and often in a funny way on top of it, which mm. I think is even sort of more empowering, right? Um, because you're acknowledging that this can be fun and it's not this serious taboo thing and we can talk about it and this is a part of the human experience and it's part of the the female experience. So so talk to us a little bit about um, why it was important for you to include that because you could have just talked about your travels. You didn't have to talk about your lovers. You didn't have to talk about But of course, we're all interested in that, whether we, you know, some of us are going to be more, more forthcoming about (laughs) how, oh yeah, give me the dirt. But tell me about how you, why that was important to you to include that as part of what you were sort of sharing with the world and writing about.
1: Well, I mean, I guess it's part of me. And I think early on too, part of this was when I was traveling and like, I remember being in Honduras and Tegucigalpa quite a while ago and in a restaurant alone and men wanted to buy me a drink and one of my persona or what i use is my persona or whatever as i'm traveling i'm a writer and that often gives me almost like untouchable or or none status you know like i i have always my pad of paper and a book and i'm writing um and when you tell even you know like man that wonder what the hell a single woman said, I say, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist.
0: And that makes it okay. Yeah, they get even scared.
1: Are you going to write about me? You know, type okay. of thing. Uh
0: uh-huh, uh-huh.
1: And the other thing I got into my head, and this I'm not totally pleased with this thought because it's kind of a male thought, but um, if really the things were going really bad, you know, like I was getting run over or whatever, I'd say, or in a bar with people yeah what would a Hemingway hero do uh-huh. you know and he uh-huh. wouldn't cry and he wouldn't get scared so that's what I would just say you know I'm having my dinner here sir. right buddies you right. know, right. You know right. And, right. and so you know both of it was and men have the right to have good sex so why couldn't I
0: right right and it was
1: way be most a lot of it was way before AIDS and all the diseases so I suppose I was lucky that way mm-hmm,
0: that there was a more um, free attitude yeah. more in general and perhaps, then somewhat. I've
1: learned so much about cultures by meeting a wonderful man and woman or woman and traveling with them or spending time with them um, like in Egypt or um, in um, Libya
0: so it allows for literally a more intimate connection.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. not just about sex. It's a right. fri- It's friendship and and um, intimacy and yeah. with a lot of people. Right, still. right, right. And lots of lots of marriage proposals.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> were there were there any that you were tempted to accept?
1: Well, the Baron and Brittany was a lovely distinguished um, man. I wrote a story about that, which has won all kinds of. I was going to say an award winning story. Award winning story, yeah. and it should be a film. I think. Yeah.
0: When, Give us the two-minute overview of that story. Okay,
1: as I was leaving Paris after leaving, working, living there for two years, I was crying. I was sad. I didn't want to leave Paris. I was getting on my plane, and this gentleman, with a good about 13 years older than me, with a mustache, and like Marie Chevalier said, Madame, puis-je vous aider? Can I help you? And um, <laughs> It's charming. And we sat together on the plane to New York. And by the time we got to New York, we had a good um, connection. And um, then I had a 10-year love affair with him. Oh, really? Going back and forth to Brittany. Oh, wow. And um, he wanted me to marry him. I would have been a baron. And I was really tempted. And if you read my story, you'll find out what happened. Okay.
0: Okay. There was a little teaser there. Yeah. If you read the story.
1: And it'll be my lead story in my book.
0: Okay, and did you say that that story's on your website or is that one Yes, not? it is. That one is yeah, on the website. Yeah. So you can get a taste of Diane's reading and or writing rather, uh, and one of her very several award-winning stories on that on, on the website. Let me tell you again what the website is, dianelebeau.com. That's Diane D I A N E lebeau L E B O W.com. Um the other thing though I wanted to you had a couple Afghani organizations yeah, you wanted to I, give, I wanted shout-, to give a shat- to, shout out to. Give a shout out
1: to um afghan actually afghani is the currency but a lot of people think it means the people so, so it's, it's just mis- afghan, afghan people yeah yep. um yeah w- women's organizations as well as that work uh, not just for afghan but global fund for women um these are in my will, as well mm-hmm. as I give money to them every year. If they're
0: good enough for Diane's will, they're right, good enough right. for you to support.
1: Women for Women <laughs> International um, was started by Zanab Salbi, who, whose father was the chief pilot, force, forced to be for Saddam Hussein. Oh, wow. Um, Women for Women International, Global Fund for Women, Ms. Foundation for Women, it uh, does domestic more than international, but a lot of good work started by Gloria Steinem. And then there's a specific interesting program called the Afghan Women's Writing Project that you can find online interesting. that supports Afghan women, including my young friend in Kabul, mm. um, to publish their writing. And, their and you stories. can read their stories. Um, Afghan Women's Writing Project.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that. And thank you for being here. This is great. Like I said, we could have gone on probably for five more hours, but thanks for letting uh, let me letting me get the overview and sharing the overview of what you've done and so your travels, your activism, your promoting women's rights and advancing the cause. Um, so thank you very much for being here. Thank
1: you for inviting me. I really appreciate it and enjoyed it.